I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both, where I get to talk to people I admire about topics I find fascinating. And today, we're tackling a topic that has touched just about everyone's lives, mental health. You know, part of the reason I wanted to do an episode on this topic right now is that I know people are struggling with feelings of isolation, anxiety, loneliness, and even depression. It's become kind of a fact of life for so many during this pandemic and the economic crisis. In fact, one study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that rates of depression have tripled for adults in the U.S. in recent months. I, like I think probably all of you, have known someone who has suffered with mental illness or whose child or loved one has. And you know how painful and difficult it is to come to terms with that and then to find help. One of the biggest challenges about dealing with mental health issues is the stigma that it too often carries. 
I think it takes a lot of courage to be open and candid about personal struggles with mental health. And I'm honored to talk to three people who have done exactly that. I'll be talking with Jason Kander, the former Secretary of State of Missouri and a veteran who has publicly shared his struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Allie Brosh, a writer and artist known for her honest and surprisingly funny descriptions of living with anxiety and depression. But first, I'm talking with Audra McDonald. Audra McDonald is a six-time Tony Award winner. In fact, she's won more Tonys for acting than any other performer in history. And she's the first person to win in every performance category. I have followed her career. I'm thrilled watching her on the stage. I'm honored to have gotten to know her as a friend. And in addition to being a phenomenal actor and singer, she is an outspoken advocate for racial justice, gender equality, and yes, mental health. She has spoken openly about surviving an attempted suicide when she was a student at Juilliard in New York. I am so personally delighted to be talking to someone who I admire and am a, the biggest fan of. How you doing in the middle of the craziness that we're in with the pandemic and everything? You know, I'm trying to gather the life lessons from this time because there's got to be some big universal lesson that we as a human race are supposed to learn, that I'm supposed to learn as a mom, as a wife, as a woman. And I'm really trying to look for the big lessons and make sure that I learn them during this time, because uh, otherwise I think I'd be going crazy, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really smart way to think about it. You know, you come, as I understand it, from a family of musicians and singers. I think your father, I read, was a music teacher. Yes. I think you had uh, grandmothers, maybe on both sides, who were sides. also pianists and piano teachers. Yeah. How did that influence you as a kid? I mean, do you feel like it's the nature-nurture? I mean, you were born into this musical family, but clearly not everybody born into a musical family <laughs> has the talent that you were born with. So how do you think about that? Well, I think, honestly, a lot of my experience growing up in, in such a musical family was that it was just a part of our lives. And I don't think it was even something that everybody considered that they were going to do for a living. It's just a part of who we were. You know, my dad had six sisters, and they would sing all over California at different churches. They were called the McDonald Sisters, and they would sing gospel music all over. And that's not what any of them ended up doing for a living. It's just a part of who they are. It was a part of our culture. It was a part of what it meant to be a McDonald, in a way, to be musical. Or even just being an audience member, even as a McDonald. The McDonald's that didn't necessarily want to be musical would still sit down on a Sunday afternoon and you know, my aunts would all sing or my grandmother would sit down and play the piano and everybody would just fellowship in that yeah. way. That's a part of our culture. But my family in particular, because I was a very specific type of child, I was a very hyperactive child. I was a very overdramatic child. I was a child that had a lot of emotion and didn't know how to handle it. My family, my mom and my dad especially, figured out quite early that music and performance was going to be a way for me to channel and to 
settle myself and focus this energy that I had. So it absolutely became nurture in that regard. And they looked for ways for me to plug in this energy. I could have seen my life going a different way with a different set of parents. I could see that that could have happened. That's so interesting. I mean, can you remember when you first knew that you were a performer? There's two things that I remember very specifically, two moments I remember. One, I sang in the church choir, and I was in church all day long on Sunday because my mom was Episcopalian and my dad was AME. Mm -hmm. So we would start the morning at St. James Episcopal (laughs) Church, Uh uh and my mom would sing in the adult choir, and my sister and I sang in the little kids' choir. And then once that church was over, we went over to Carter AME, where my Mm -hmm. grandmother played the organ. (laughs) We were in church all afternoon. So I was starving by the time we would get home. But my day was filled with the Lord on Sundays. (laughs) At any rate, so at my mom's church, I remember our time as the little kids' choir. We'd get up, turn around, and face the congregation and sing. And I remember my dad always saying to my mom, she's so loud. You know, her voice is so loud. It sticks out. And then I remember one early evening after a day of church, where my mom and dad, after hearing them talk about that I was loud, started asking me to match pitches. And my dad would, was playing his organ in, in the music room. And he'd say, sing this note. And I'd sing it. And I, could, I remember my mom and dad looking at each other. And I, there, and I knew some kind of communication mm-hmm. was going on, mm-hmm. but I didn't. And those are moments that are still with me in my 50-year-old sort of adult brain in this time right now. So they must have been moments that um, really spoke to me as saying, oh, there's something there. There is something there, yeah. And when I finally did first get on stage with a little dinner theater that I started in when I was nine— I remember feeling better, settled, you know? You were meant to do this. Yes. It was who you are. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like I'm sitting here, as I'm sitting here in my closet with all these (laughs) cords plugged into my computer and this microphone and stuff, it's like when you find the right, you know, USB cord for the right port and it fits and all of a sudden everything turns on. That's how it felt for me when I first stepped on stage. That's a great description. (laughs) I love that. I got plugged in. (laughs) Yeah, you got plugged in. And so then you decided you were going to be professional. And you went to study classical voice at Juilliard, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Long way from home. Yes. Uh, across the country. Yeah. Fresno and uh, New York. I don't know about you. I was so homesick when I showed up at college. Yeah. I was just bereft. I didn't feel like I fit or I I should be there. And I remember calling home collect. That's what we used to do in those days. Oh, I remember and, those days. Uh, those are my saying, days too. <laughs> I want to I want to come home. And you know, my father, who never wanted me to go that far away anyway, he said, "Okay, great, come home." And my mother, "No, no, <laughs> you're gonna stick it out." But here you are, all the way across the country, in a very intense, dare I say, competitive environment. What was yes. that like? It was hard. It was hard because. I was this kid from Fresno, California, who had gotten accepted to Juilliard, and I had always known this is what I want to do. I want to do Broadway. I want to be on Broadway. I want to do musicals. And I knew that Juilliard was a big school and that I should audition. So I thought I'll audition as a singer because it seemed to be my strong suit. But I think I just didn't realize what I was getting into. I didn't realize how intense it would be in terms of a classical education, because singing classically was not what I was interested in doing. But I had gotten in, and 
I really didn't research the program enough to understand that if I got into the classical vocal department, I was not going to be able to study the things that I wanted to study, which meant no acting, no dance. It was basically, you know, music theory, solfege, English and Italian and German, French dictions and music history, which is all great. But that's it wasn't what I was interested in doing. It didn't feed your soul. No. So the whole time I was there, I was really, really frustrated. But I also felt the weight of being, you know, the local girl who had made it to Juilliard. And this is the local girl that wanted to be on Broadway. So I felt the weight of not being able to go home, not being mm-hmm. able to admit failure, not being able to say I've made a mistake. That's a lot to put on, yeah. you know, your shoulders as, what were you, 18, 19 I was years 18. old? 18 yeah, years old? I was 18. It was a lot to handle. And because I had always had theater and performing as a way of sort of focusing me and settling me. And I was now in New York so close to my goal in that I was living in New York, living on Broadway, and I'd never felt further away from my dream. Well, you've been very open about mm-hmm. this time in your life that you, you know, you got really depressed. Yeah. How, how did you come to grips with that? I mean, what did you... I didn't. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I was just getting more and more despondent and more and more fearful that I was never going to get to my goal. And I was having boy trouble. And I'm an emotional person. Mm -hmm. And so one night after having my heart broken by this boy, that was really the straw that broke the camel's back. I I tried to slip my wrists, Mm. you know. And uh, (laughs) I I, uh, reached out for help and was taken to a mental hospital. And that's where I ended up for a month. You know, when you think about that experience for you, and I have other friends who have had similar experiences, you know, sometimes that cry for help is the only way to get the attention and support, and in your case, you know, time off in a way, Mm -hmm. to get whatever kind of support, help, encouragement you need. So when you came back out, did you feel steadier? Had you made some decisions about yourself? Like, I don't want to go back to that classical program. That's not me. I'm not going to force myself. Well, a lot of things went down. I, You know, my parents both flew out to see me. And my dad, again, maybe like your dad, my dad had always said, look, Audrey, you don't have to do this. You can Mm -hmm. come home at Mm -hmm. any time. Mm -hmm. And what I think in reaching out for help, because that's what the attempt was. It was a cry for help. And what it did was it allowed me to say, I'm not happy here. Right. To be honest with yourself. And to start to really examine what was going to bring me happiness. And so at that point, when I was really able to sort of vocalize, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be an opera singer. I don't want to sing classical music. And so I knew I had to finish my degree How I went about finishing it, along with the help of the school at that point, was very, very different. It was one of those things where it's like, we got to do what we got to do to get through this. But we all know this is not what Audra's going to do (laughs) for a living. And I think that alleviated some of the, um, the pressure. And then I got an opportunity to audition for a Broadway tour for something during that time. And the dean of the school said, yeah, go do that. Go do that. Very encouraging that they said that. Yeah. These were things that helped me, you know, get back on track. But I needed that derailment, I guess. 
I don't want to say, because I don't ever want to say, you know, suicide is the answer, but I needed to reach out for help. Well, you know, I, I, I really appreciate your openness and telling this story because there's a really happy ending. <laughs> you know, I've kind of been to happy endings because it was like, what, two, two and a half years after this happened that you ended up in Carousel. Wasn't it th- yes. that close in time? It was that close in time. I think it was 91 that I had this uh, episode in my life. And it was 93 when I was cast in Carousel and 94 when it opened on on Broadway at Lincoln Center. And uh, I won the Tony in June of 1994. <laughs> it's crazy. You can't make this up, Audra. <laughs> the reason I'm open about my experience is because, like you said, Hillary, I want to make sure that other Audras out there, anybody out there, sees that it does get better. It can get better. It's okay to ask for help. And I make no bones about the fact that I, you know, it's it's one of those things, especially in a time like this with all this trauma happening and all over the planet and the country and everything that's happening with us politically right now, it still can be very triggering. Um, And so I still have to find ways to sort of take care of myself. And and I I understand the importance of self-care now in whatever way that is that I have to do for myself. But I stay open about this topic because I don't want people to think that they are alone and the only ones who have suffered through this. They are not. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, 
playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find that in sort of the, you know, the entertainment world, you know, people are more sensitive and therefore shoulder a bigger burden of, you know, kind of mental health challenges? Yeah, I uh, probably. I, I would probably say that that's true. Sometimes it's hard to sort of, you know, be anthropological about your own culture. And I'm talking about my entertainment, you know, culture and to step back and look at it. But if you think about it, that it would it would make sense, right? It certainly scans that, especially when our job is to, you know, literally go inside and go deep down, as Dory Previn said in a poem, where the iguanas play in yeah. your soul. You're going yeah. all the way down to the bottom to pull it all up and then serve it up on a silver platter for the rest of the world to look at and go, oh, yes, I feel that, or no, that's horrible, or whatever it is. So just by nature of what we do um, as artists, I imagine that that makes sense. But having said that, um, maybe in some ways we're more in touch with it. Yeah, it makes sense, too. I think it would be great to have, you know, theater games and things like that for, like, neurosurgeons or people who have to work in combat or, mm -hmm. or you know, or people on the front lines right now in, in these hospitals. And it might be good for them to get a lot of this out 
I think that's a great idea. I mean, <laughs> no. you know, and, and think about, I mean, there's so many performers, artists out of work right now because of uh. the pandemic. And I almost wish that, that what you just said could be operationalized and, and maybe <laughs> it could be done virtually, but you, right. would, you know, you would have actors sort of leading workshops about, okay, <laughs> here's, here's how you can get in touch with your feelings right, and act right. it out and, and feel better because of it. Actually, and having said that, because of what's happening with our industry right now, I, I am concerned about mm-hmm. the people in our industry and not just the actors and actresses, but there's the crews, the people who work in the restaurants that serve these theater districts, you know, the musicians, the wardrobe. All, it's a really, really frightening time for it us is. right now. It is. And so I imagine there's going to be a, a, a lot of trauma just in whether or not people are going to see their industry come back at all and what it will look like when it does come back. Yeah. I have faith in my heart that we will get it all back someday because we have to. We have to. As human beings, I don't think we can exist without theater. I, I mean, agree with The Greeks you. knew it. I mean, yeah. we, this is just, this is a part of the human condition that we need to be able to see all of it out there in front of us. You know, a, a great old dame who I loved so very much, Zoe Caldwell, one of the greatest actresses. Yes. She's passed away this past year, but she talked about how, you know, with the Greek tragedies, you see all that <laughs> stuff out on stage and it helps you to get it out so you don't That's go exactly off. That's exactly right. That's <laughs> exactly. how I feel. I mean, yes. what, you know. No, I mean, I went to the theater after the 2016 election for literally therapy. I mean, good Lord. I mean, the feelings and the despair and and just the incredible worry about what was going to happen to our country. And, you know, I would lose myself, you know, going to the theater. And I loved what you said recently. You were performing in a Carnegie Hall virtual concert. Yes. And you chose to perform the song Sing Happy. Yeah. And I loved it because you said there's something about Sing Happy that is so defiant. Yeah. That could be a mantra for life, for performing, for this terrible time we're living through, for the common trauma that we are, you know, experiencing does it ring true to you in your life that you can be defiant and and choose happiness despite everything? Absolutely. And in that, I give myself permission, and I've just started to learn this, that when that means that by choosing happiness, it means you need to take time for yourself mm-hmm. and choose self-care mm-hmm. and sit back and take care of yourself so that you can then move forward Amen. again, that is a part of it. That is a part of that defiance. That's exactly way, right. You know, yes. that is a, yes. what is it? A revolutionary act. That's yes. a revolutionary act. That's, that's self-care. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. so, and that's also something that I want to model for my kids mm-hmm. or for people who might look up to me, you know, yes. whoever that might be. I want to model that for them as well and, and, and acknowledge that there are some days that I get up and I fail miserably. <laughs> Join fail the crowd. <laughs> Join the crowd. I mean, you just, yeah. you know, you kind of wander around your house going, I can't believe this. I can't <laughs> believe this. I, I don't know what to do. Right. But then you get, uh, then you take the time and then you yeah. try again the next day. And even when you're in the throes of depression or an anxiety and even the fact that you woke up that day. Mm-hmm. You're at least sitting up. Or even if you're in your bed, at least you're still in your bed. You're there. You're mm-hmm. there. That is an act of defiance. The fact that you were living through another day. It's something that you made it through. And that, yes. for me, in those dark, 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 dark times in that hospital that was frightening and I, I didn't know what I was, I was on all this medication. I didn't know what I was doing. 
there was a part of each day that I would open my eyes and I go, okay, well, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. I'm still here. Let's see what this day brings. There is hope even in that. I want to acknowledge that for the people who may be laid out right now. At least they're still here. I just, that needs to be said. It needs to be said, and you are such a great messenger of that. I am so grateful to you. I'm just so grateful to you being you. Oh, and I you. So thank you. To keep up with Audra and all of the fabulous things she's doing, you can find her on Twitter at Audra Equality MC. My next guest is Jason Cantor, someone who I have watched for quite a number of years. He served our country in the military, went to Afghanistan, served both in the Missouri State House and then as Secretary of State. And in his book, which I highly recommend, called Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage, he recounts in a really compelling way a lot of the lessons that he's learned in his life. But I really think that one of the most courageous actions that I've seen from anybody is when you publicly announced that you were dropping out of the race for mayor of Kansas City, which you certainly seemed on track to win, in order to take care of your mental health. Can you take us back to that fall of 2018, what you were experiencing and thinking and what led you to make what was a really courageous decision, Jason? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, First of all, thanks so much for having me. This is a pleasure and, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, so it's interesting. I stand by everything that's in the book except for the stuff that I didn't know wasn't right. Like there's a chapter where I talk about coming home from Afghanistan and I sort of make the argument to the readers, but really to myself that I hadn't done enough for my problems to actually be post-traumatic stress. And I sanitized what I was going through uh, in the book. You know, no secret, like when I was writing that book, I think I was very candid for someone who was planning to run for president. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it was a little bit sanitized, that part. And so now I look back and I went through about 11 years of living with untreated, undiagnosed post-traumatic stress and doing what a lot of veterans do, which is telling myself, well, I didn't do enough to earn post-traumatic stress. I felt like claiming post-traumatic stress would be like stolen valor. And I, I just, I couldn't do that. And it just got to the point where, you know, I decided I wasn't going to run for president. I was going to run for mayor. And it was a two-part plan. It was, I'm going to seek redemption by serving my neighbors, and I'm going to go to the VA. I hadn't admitted to myself yet it was PTSD, but I was like, I need some help. And so I did the first part, and it was going great. Like you said, we were going to win, but I didn't do the second part. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And we got to the point where we were breaking records. I had raised three times as much money as the other nine candidates for mayor combined. I mean, we we were going to win probably by a country mile. And I was increasingly thinking about killing myself because I had gone through this decade and it was getting worse and worse of never getting a good night's rest because of violent nightmares, hypervigilance, emotional numbness, and then depression. Because if you just live with that for long enough, it's depressing. And so I finally, I called the Veterans Crisis Hotline and what really swung me was that the woman on the other end of the phone, her tone of voice was so unexpectedly for me casual that I realized 
I wasn't special. I wasn't different than anybody else who dealt with this. I was just another call. And she'd had many of these in this shift. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized like, oh, that's what this is. And I decided to stop everything and go to the VA. You know, it's so important, obviously, for yourself and your family that you made that call and then you followed up on it. But it's also really important for people listening to hear you describe that. I've had a lot of experience uh, talking to vets, going to VA hospitals and programs, and hearing much of what you just said being repeated, you know, like nothing really bad happened to me. But I remember so vividly being at Walter Reed when I was a senator visiting vets from New York who'd been serving in either Iraq or Afghanistan. And I was walking down the hallway and this um, young man came by and he recognized me and he stopped and he, he said, uh, Mrs. Clinton, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And he said, you know, I got physically injured. They're doing a fine job treating me. And he showed me that, you know, part of his hand and arm had been badly uh, mangled. He said, but where do I go to get my brain back? Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that because he almost repeated verbatim what you said. He said, you know, I was on the fast track. I could do anything. I was physically in great shape. I was mentally, you know, at the top of my game. He said, now I can't sleep. My wife has to basically write out lists for me about what I need to do one after another. And if this young man like you had been walking down the street or running for office or working in, you know, business somewhere, it would have been really hard to recognize the pain and suffering that he or you were experiencing so people hear about, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, but they don't know what it looks like. How did it impact your day-to-day -day life? You said you had violent dreams. Were those like every night? Did they wake you up? Yeah. Now that I've had therapy and I've dealt with the underlying trauma, I, I get these nightmares about once every couple weeks, and they're not that bad anymore, and I know, I know what to do for them. It, for about a decade, it was every single night. Like I, I went about a decade without a good night's sleep, and now that I can man, it's awesome. Like, mm -hmm. it's like a superpower. And <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I would get these nightmares. And it is kind of interesting how the brain works. So when I first came back, like for the first few years, it would replay situations from my deployment. And for context, I was an intelligence officer. And my role was to investigate corruption and espionage by Afghan officials, basically figure out which bad guys were pretending to be good guys. And what that meant was, I would go out and I'd have meetings with folks and I'd be just be me and my translator most of the time and nobody would know where I was and I'd be gone for long periods of time and very vulnerable. And so that's what one of the things I really struggled with when I came back was, you know, I had friends who were in a lot of firefights and here I was, I went to meetings and it took therapy at the VA for somebody to explain to me, you, you were exposed with no possibility of being saved for hours at a time. That's traumatic. Anyway, my, my nightmares would be, I'd be in some of those meetings, but in the dreams, they would kidnap me. So that's how it started. And then a few years in, I decided, well, I must be getting better because the dreams no longer take place in Afghanistan, hmm. Um, hmm. which was actually... A bad sign. <laughs> yeah. I, did, I, I found out later in therapy that that's actually like really bad because what it meant was now the dreams were the same sort of threat, except the environment of the dream was my house and the people who were under threat were my wife, my son, you know, people like that. And I remember my therapist at the VA really just blew my mind when he was like, 
No, it's bad when that happens because one of your other symptoms is hypervigilance. You think you're in danger all the time. Mm -hmm. You think it's really happening in your life because every night while you're unconscious, it does. And one of the things that is really missed is that there's a really important sort of brainwashing that happens when you go into the military. And I, I don't even mean this in a derogatory way. For me to keep going into those meetings with people who might want to cut my head off on YouTube over and over again, or for you know an infantry soldier to keep going on patrols, they have to grind into you from the day you get off the bus at basic that everybody else is doing harder stuff than you. And this is no big deal. Mm -hmm. It's important. You have to do that. The problem we have is we have not really figured out a way to flip that switch off, which is why people like me spend a decade saying, everybody else has it worse. Mm -hmm. Somebody has to sit you down on your way out and be like, okay, you need to know. That was crazy. Like, that's not normal. You're going to need help. But instead, you just, that switch is still on. I think that's absolutely true in the military for the reasons you've just described. It has to be ingrained in you if you're going to be putting yourself at risk and in danger in all kinds of settings. But I think it's also true more generally for mental health. Yeah. You know, people need to hear, hey, wait a minute, that's not normal. Mm -hmm. The child who was abused who then starts having flashbacks as a young adult, you know, hey, that's to be expected. We can help you. You know, I think about your being in Afghanistan. And when I was reading the book, I've been in Afghanistan six, seven times, maybe long more, several times when I was senator, several times when I was secretary of state. I might spend the, you know, two nights, three nights there. But I really resonated to what you were describing about the hypervigilance. Because even though, you know, I'm there to have conversations with, you know, officials, but occasionally, you know, they'd bring in a warlord who we were trying to influence. You'd sit across from these guys. You knew they were lying to you. You knew that they were personally responsible for murdering a bunch of people. And you just could feel your body reacting. And when you're in that situation, as a military officer or as a civilian, you have to be a bit hypervigilant. I mean, you are looking around for, okay, where is the exit? I remember on my first trip to Kabul going in, you know, at that time we thought, wow, you know, this is great. We're doing so well and all the rest of it. Going into what was still functioning as a center of commerce and having dinner at a restaurant, going to a clothing store where I, you know, I bought a really nice embroidered Afghan coat. But next time I went back, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, we were sleeping in containers on the premises of the embassy and, and we were coming in for, you know, screw drive down landings in the airport. I mean, you just begin to feel the danger. And anybody who hasn't been there doesn't maybe understand why all of a sudden you're, you are looking for where's the nearest exit. And is that guy's finger on the trigger of the automatic weapon just because that's where it rests? Or right. is there something else about to happen? So, you know, I think when you describe how you lived for 10 years, basically, in that hypervigilant state, as though you were walking into a warlord's office or driving down the road to another intel meeting, I really got it. Well, so after you got the response calling into the VA, what came next for you? So I went to the VA in Kansas City. So I show up and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to walk in and it's the same government that had all my information a few years ago. Like I'm going to say, hey, I'm Jason, Army, you know, here's my Soch. Uh, can I get in? 
you know, and look, I'm somebody who had been around all this stuff from a policy perspective. Maybe I should have known better, but that ain't how it worked, unfortunately. Um, everybody I've ever encountered at the VA individually has been fantastic. I mean, everybody there, they just want to serve vets. But as you know, the bureaucracy and some of the rules that are put in place from on high are really unhelpful. And in mm -hmm. my case, I ran into one, which I think they've since gotten rid of, but said that if you come in within five years of your combat deployment, we'll enroll you in the system, no questions asked. But if you are beyond that five years, then you have to like prove that you had a traumatic experience and that you need this, this treatment, which, you know, I just had gone through a decade of trying to tell myself and the world that I was fine. And now I needed to like prove that I wasn't, which was weird. And also like for somebody who, you know, was in not the best state of mind, you know, look, I had a phone full of influential contacts, a Georgetown law degree and high level government experience. And I was overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So anyway, at the VA, I saw an emergency psych resident that day, but I was basically told that it'll be a few months before I can get into weekly therapy if my claim is, is accepted. And I was like, that ain't going to work. And so I contacted a buddy of mine who had started this organization, Veterans Community Project in Kansas City. And I had toured it six weeks earlier and was blown away. And Veterans Community Project, real quick, does two things. One, helps any vet navigate the system or do anything else they need. And two, fights veterans homelessness with a village of tiny houses that's been really successful. So six weeks earlier, I'm on a VIP tour as the next mayor. And now I call and I tell my buddy what's going on. And he's like, come on in. And I walk through the doors of the outreach center, like any of the other thousands of vets who have in Kansas City. They handled my paperwork. And a week later, I was in weekly therapy at the VA. Mm -hmm. And it, it made all the difference for me, like quite literally. Yeah. yeah. When somebody is ready to seek help, they need to get that help yes. as soon as possible. You get like one, maybe two chances with them. That's it. Yeah. You know, I want to go back for a minute to your announcement dropping out where you admit it. Look, instead of fundraising, I find myself on the phone with the VA's Veterans Crisis Line, tearfully conceding that I've had suicidal thoughts. It wasn't the first time I've been hiding that from myself. You know, I was trying to convince myself and I wasn't sharing the full picture. I still have nightmares. I'm depressed. You know, that was an incredibly honest letter explaining why you were dropping out of the race. How scary was that to do? It was really scary. It was scary and it wasn't scary. It wasn't scary in the sense that I had arrived at the place where I finally no longer cared. I mean, I cared, but I had a wife and a son and I was worried that I was, you know, going to hurt myself. And so finally something had come along that had become more important to me than my career. And the reason my career had been so important is because it had been my coping mechanism. I had self-medicated with throwing myself into this search for redemption. And I care about my country and I care about service and I did it for those reasons, but I th probably threw myself into it with the wild abandon I did because it was the thing that took my mind off being inside my own mind. And so finally, I was momentarily relieved of that because I knew how important this was. But at the same time, I didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress. I didn't know, have any idea if I could get better. All I knew was that the one thing in my life that was objectively going really well was my career. And I was hitting the self-destruct button on that. And so that was scary. You know, in a October 2019 New York Times article about you, I read something that really made an impact. You know, again, it said for more than a decade, Mr. Kander said he refused to acknowledge to himself or anyone else that these might be signs of post-traumatic stress. I didn't feel like I did enough to earn it, he said, looking back. 
Do you think that still is one of the principal reasons why vets are not seeking help? I mean, do you think that basically summarizes the biggest obstacle? They don't feel worthy to seek help? Yeah, now I know it does because I've heard from so many since my announcement. And I've had so many people tell me that the most important part of what I said was I didn't feel like I'd earned it. Uh, In fact, when I was over there, there were two other gentlemen who I worked with who did a very similar job to me. And they were really the only people I knew who were experiencing Afghanistan the way I was. And they were part of what was called the Tactical Human Intelligence Team. Basically, they went out and they met with people. And sometimes we did it together, but a lot of times we all did it separately. And I didn't stay in touch with them afterwards. And that's sort of a lesson for people. If you go through something traumatic, stay in touch with the other people who did because you can learn from each other. So we all went our separate ways. One of those gentlemen, a year after we came back, died in a one-vehicle accident which I've now learned when that happens with combat veterans frequently, it's not an accident, unfortunately. And then the other gentleman, I finally, after I'd gone through treatment, reached out to. This was about eight months ago that I reached out to him. And he was about to retire from active duty. And we had a conversation that led to him finally going in and getting treatment. And one of the things he told me was he was like, look, Jason, after you left, like I had people who I tried to put into your job. And he told me literally he had somebody who quit the first day because they got back and they had urinated on themselves. Like Mm. it was like what we did was really frightening and it was crazy and people don't do it anymore. But the thing is, is like, what if he and I had talked because he's had his own struggles and is now on the mend, but what if he and I and the other gentleman, what if we had just stayed in touch? And that's what I realize now is that why it's so important that I said I had felt like I didn't earn it because I've just, I've heard from not just veterans who say they felt the same way, but I hear from people who you know, had a bad car accident or went through cancer treatment or anything like that. And those people often will start with me by feeling like they have to you know, have a disclaimer and say, well, you know, I wasn't in a war or anything. And I always stop them and I say, you know, you know, your brain has no idea what I did and it doesn't care. Like I spent 10 years comparing my own trauma to other people's and it was a giant waste of my own time. Mm, that's a really, really good point. Can you describe a little bit about the actual therapy? What was it for you that worked? Yeah. Um, first, I would start with what my biggest misconception about therapy was when I went in, which was I always imagined that it was sort of passive, like getting an IV drip. Like you just go in and you sit down and you talk and that's supposed to. But what I didn't understand until I started is that it's really active. It's a lot of work, not just when you're in there. And so what it was for me was a combination of a couple of things. One, was uh, something called prolonged exposure therapy, which was vocalizing the memories. And the way my therapist at least did it was I would use the voice memo on my phone and I would sit there, he would have me close my eyes and I would just for about 45 minutes have to tell him the story of you know a traumatic experience, an intrusive or disruptive memory. And he would each time act like he'd never heard it. And then in between, and this is where we get to the homework, in between sessions, I'd have to put in my headphones, close my eyes, wasn't allowed to multitask or do anything else. Every single day between sessions, I had to listen to the thing. And I listened to myself tell the story, and that would unlock additional details and that sort of thing about it. And then I'd go in and I'd do it again, and I'd add those. The other homework I had was uh, what he called in vivo therapy, which was just no longer avoiding the stuff I had avoided. Uh, war movies, books, articles about Afghanistan, sitting in a restaurant with my back to the door, being in a crowded place with my family, all that kind of stuff. And I'd have to do it again for 45 minutes at a time. 
And as I did it, I got better and better. And as I listened to the stories more, what would happen is I remember the first memory we did, I, we did like four or five sessions with it. And then I came in and I said to my therapist, I was like, you know, I think I'm bored with this one. Like, and I remember he laughed really loud and he was like, great, that's the goal. He was like, boredom is the goal. And I he was like, that. he's like, congratulations, we can do a new memory. <laughs> I like that. That's really insightful. It was huge because it meant I, I had gone from it having a grip on me and me sweating and getting emotional mm-hmm. and my heart racing when I told it to, I'm just bored with this. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host. Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. 
Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, so now you're the National Expansion Director for the Veterans Community Project, which is a group that provides transitional housing and assistance to homeless veterans. How did you get started with that work? So that's actually, that's the organization that I went to. That you walked into? Yeah. Yeah. And then after about six, seven months or so into weekly therapy, where I was, I was starting to do quite a lot better, I started hanging around Veterans Community Project. And I was kind of mentoring the leadership on the fact that they had been asked by communities all over the country to expand because they, they had eradicated veterans homelessness, street homelessness in Kansas City and just done remarkable things. And so I'm kind of mentoring them through it. And then finally, uh, my buddy Brian, the CEO, he, he said to me, hey, man, how about you just come here and do this. You've created a national organization before. You know, you're not working at the moment. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what I did. So now I'm the president of Veterans Community Project. And, you know, we are now under construction in uh, Longmont, Colorado, outside Denver. We're about to be under construction in St. Louis. And I expect we will be up and running on that in about five additional major cities starting next year. That is terrific. It's something that I really, really applaud you and your whole team and colleagues for because you're coming up with a model that I hope can be taken to scale because the need is so enormous. So I have to end by asking you, so what do you think lies in your future or are you just going day by day these days? You know, the, the funny thing is I, um, and you're very familiar with the art as well of dodging the question, which I'm yes. not about to do. I'm just <laughs> kind of making fun of myself from before. You know, like in 2018, when people asked me, like, are you going to run for president? I had a really good stock answer, which was, well, I'm trying to focus on making sure we still have elections right now. Mm -hmm. And like that worked really well. But like the answer was, yeah, I think I'm probably going to. I just didn't say that. And the thing is, I used to just think all the time about what was next for me because the present sucked. Now life is, I'm really enjoying it. And I really love what I'm doing at Veterans Community Project. And so to me, it's what's next for me is continuing that. But then the other thing is 
because the other way I usually get this question, and I appreciate you not asking it this way, one practitioner to another, I greatly appreciate it, not doing that, are you coming back? Because mm-hmm. I think what you and I understand is being on the ballot is not the only way to be back. 100%. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And so, you know, I have my podcast, Majority 54, where mm-hmm. our mission is to help people have conversations with conservatives where they convince them, but without losing the relationships. I love doing that. And I feel like I'm part of the conversation. I feel like I have a platform and I feel like I'm back. And I'm, I'm my dog is agreeing with me downstairs. Um, <laughs> yeah, cheering for you, actually. Yes, yeah. Um, so the UPS guy's here and that cannot be tolerated. <laughs> but uh, I'm enjoying this and I feel like I am back. And maybe one day I'll run for something again. I don't know. But I genuinely don't have any plans to do it right now because I'm just having fun. Oh, my friend, that is the single best answer. Thank you. And you're making a difference. And isn't that what we all hope for? I mean, that really is uh, at bottom what makes for a purposeful, meaningful life. And you're doing it. Thank you so much for saying all that. And, and right back at you. I don't think you need the validation, but uh, but I just here here in our house, we, we really appreciate uh, uh, you. And, and thanks. Thank you for having this conversation with me. I have a feeling that we'll be hearing a lot more from Jason. In the meantime, check out his best-selling book, Outside the Wire, and his podcast, Majority 54, wherever you listen to podcasts. My last guest is author and artist Allie Brosh. Back in 2009, when she was 24 years old, Allie created the blog Hyperbole and a Half. She quickly became an internet sensation because people loved her hilarious observations about things like staying up way too late, falling down an online rabbit hole and trying to figure out what her dogs are thinking. She turned that blog into a best-selling book, complete with her signature line drawings. She calls her style a very precise crudeness. One day after the release of her first book, Allie's blog posts just stopped. And for nearly seven years, she disappeared from the internet. For her fans, her silence was concerning, especially because she had written about her battles with depression. But earlier this year, Allie made her return with her second book, Solutions and Other Problems. In it, she delves into everything from growing up as a creative and very quirky kid to living with depression to loss and grief. These days, Allie lives with her husband in a small town outside Bend, Oregon. She's a self-described recluse who spends most of her time writing, drawing, playing online games, and reading up on math and science. I was really impressed with how Allie takes the sometimes painful, sometimes funny twists and turns of her inner life and translates that into pictures and stories to share with the rest of us. Those of you who have already come across her work know how brave and original it is, and I wanted to talk to her about all of that. Part of the reason I was drawn to you is how brave you have been. You've been really brave about... Thank you for saying you know, that. <laughs> talking about difficult issues, you know, depression, most well-known of the things you've dealt with, but you also make people laugh. I mean, you try to capture the full range of you, and then there's something for everybody to connect to. You know, for instance, in 
hyperbole and a half, you write that depression is like having a bunch of dead fish, but no one around you will acknowledge that the fish are dead. Instead, they offer to help you look for the fish or try to help you figure out, you know, why they disappeared. Talking about depression in that way, almost giving it not just a language, but a visualization, I think is part of the reason you produce such an outpouring of response when people read that and read about what you'd gone through. Yeah, I, I feel like it can be difficult to be in those negative spaces because it's like we don't really as like a culture know how to be in that uncomfortable place together. We want to move it toward like one of those endpoints. And I think like what people really need when they're in that space, because it's a complicated problem, you know, nobody knows the answer to like, what do you do if you're feeling depressed? What do you do if you're feeling suicidal? I don't know how to fix it. But I think like in those moments, we can show that we're willing to be there. Right. I mean, it's definitely something I like had to learn. It, it, it definitely isn't obvious. You know, I, there was a friend I had who was going through something difficult. And he said, like, I don't need you to fix it. I just want to tell you about it or tell you what it is. And that like really, really opened my eyes to maybe like what my role is as the listener and showed me like where that, oh man, I'm, I'm wanting to like move this along faster because I'm feeling uncomfortable because like I see this person I love being in pain and I, I don't want that to be happening. I, I feel kind of like responsible for stopping it. And so this is about like my insecurity with like, I'm not providing a space where they can feel comfortable and like they aren't being pressured to move faster than they're ready for or faster than, than they know how. I don't know. I, I, and I feel like when people have offered that sort of support to me, it's been extraordinarily meaningful. It's just nice to be able to not have to like fix it right away and not have to make it okay right now. So many people need to hear that. And so many of the people who are your fans or admirers who have you know, responded online to you, you know, they really felt seen. I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you're also at the same time drawing. I mean, you, yeah. you, you're illustrating these thoughts and you started drawing when you were relatively young, didn't you? Oh yeah. It was sort of like a babysitting tool. My parents <laughs> found out that I, yeah. that I liked it and it's something that I could like be <laughs> occupied with. And I, I was a little hellion. I was not an easy child. My mom could tell you this. If I asked her to describe, she just goes, oh, <laughs> we, we wanted to give you back. <laughs> well, you know, your new book called Solutions and Other Problems is coming out seven years after your first book, which had a, another great title, Hyperbole and a Half. What does it feel like to work on a book over, you know, those years, especially when your first book, you know, got a really great response. So I almost finished the book in 2015. We were at the point where we were like finalizing the table of contents and I scrapped it. I didn't like it. And I was at this point in my life where I was starting to have like new types of thoughts and become a new person within my own personality, but I hadn't quite gotten like comfortable and settled yet in that person. And so I didn't know how to say the things I wanted to say with the proper nuance. So the crucial moment in that chain of like learning what I was trying to do there for me was 
viewing myself like a wildlife documentary narrator, you know, like David Attenborough. Mm -hmm. So like if I were following an animal and I were trying to describe what the animal was doing, how would I say it? That seemed like the proper way to talk about my own feelings and a, a, a very useful state of mind to be in in regard to myself when trying to describe these things to other people. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I've been watching a series of documentaries where little cameras have been attached inside a uh, like stuffed animal version, but really sophisticated. So, you know, if it's a muskrat or it's a baby lion or a fox or a mongoose or whatever. And so they have this little camera in this robotic animal that is very much looking like the real thing to the point where the other animals come up and examine it and, you know, sniff it and try to figure (laughs) out what it is. It's fascinating, though, to see the perspective of how these other animals are relating to it. So you're sort of in the in the perspective of the animal. Yes, have, and that's, that's interesting. Just, that's really interesting. So like what you just said, I'm just kind of thinking of you being the being who is both looking inward and outward and trying to, <laughs> you know, honestly describe who you are and not only who you are independently, individually, but in connection with, you know, the rest of the species. I, I find that stuff interesting infinitely fascinating. Well, one of the other things that I I love about what you do is you do have a gift of looking at the ordinary and finding the absurdity in it. I've been trying to learn like what my favorite types of visual jokes are. And one thing I found that consistently cracks me up is when there is like a picture of something and then like the name of that thing, just sort of like presenting it, like say a picture of a bacteria and then the name of the bacteria. If you just look at that information and consider it, it makes the bacteria look ridiculous. It makes it seem like here is Helicobacter pylori. (laughs) As we all know, (laughs) this is what it looks like. (laughs) It's squiggly. And like, like I imagine myself being this thing and I would feel really undignified. And so if people were calling attention to me by saying, this is Allie Brosh, I would be like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) stop looking at me. (laughs) Well, but I mean, just think about how ridiculous the coronavirus looks like. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I'm actually kind of curious to ask you, what's the last thing like recently that you found super, super funny? I find my grandchildren constantly <laughs> funny. You know, my my grandson has a view of life that he views, I think, as very logical. <laughs> like the other day, we planted a garden and, you know, it's sort of the end of the season. And I said, well, why don't you come help me? We're going to, you know, pull out all the stuff that is dead. And, you know, then maybe we can plant some things for the fall. And he goes, I have just discovered bees can sting you. <laughs> he said it really just like that, like that Just calmly? like that. And I said, well, yeah, bees can, but you stay away from them and, you know, you don't bother them. They don't bother you. He says, well, you don't know every bee. So you don't <laughs> know whether if awesome. I stay away from every bee, every bee will leave me alone. I said, well, you know, that is true. <laughs> I kind of think you're trying to get out of helping me in the garden. I think I, I relate to tell. your grandson. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't really tell. Was this serious or was just just a, a ploy to say, no, I don't want to go out in the garden right now. Thank you very much. But I just can't tell you how much I have enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed talking to you too. 
thank you for being brave and thank you for being you. <laughs> thank you for the same thing, Hillary. <laughs> Allie's new book is called Solutions and Other Problems. If you're having a difficult time managing your mental health right now, or if you're living with someone or know someone who is having a difficult time, please know that you're not alone. If you or someone you know is in distress, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. In the meantime, let's all keep shining a light on mental health and working together to shatter the stigma that has surrounded this issue for far too long and demand that people get help when they are ready to seek it or need it. There is still not enough services and support for people and families who are confronting mental health issues. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin and Kathleen Russo with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Lauren Peterson, Rob Russo, and Lona Valmoro. Our engineer is Zach McNeese. And original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like the show, tell someone else about it. You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions and comments or even ideas for future episodes to youandmebothpod at gmail.com. Come back next week when we talk about crime and romance, in novels that is, with mystery writer Louise Penny and romance writer Stacey Abrams. You won't want to miss listening to both of these amazing women. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. 
Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.